0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Armed and Ready Podcast. I am your host, Jason Wood, the VA loan guy. Today we have an Army veteran, Terrence Lysenko, on the show today. Super excited to hear about what he does. He recovers some really cool old World War II aircraft and submarines and all sorts of stuff. So come check out this episode. Today we have an Army veteran and guest. Terrace Lasinko with us, who has some really cool stories to share with us. He um, does a lot of recovery with uh, A&T Recoveries, his company. And um, we want to get into some of the neat stuff that he's found all over the world and um, hear about his story. So, Terrace, thank you so much for uh, carving out some time for us today. Thanks for having me. So, as we do um, always on the Armed and Ready show is, we want to know about your, your military past a little bit. Um, you know, kind of what was what was the trigger, the, 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 the motivation that got you interested in joining the military? And, and then, you know, kind of, kind of walk us through that experience a little. I'm an
1: ethnic Kazakh. You know what that is? No. Okay. I'm an ethnic Ukrainian Kazakh. I'm a Ukrainian ethnic Kazakh. Uh, every male member of my family serves in the military. That's just what we do. So um, when I, I got to a certain age, my mother, who loved uh the navy white uniforms because she was kind of a flower child uh (laughs) wanted me to well i had a congressional uh congressional whatever to annapolis
0: right Oh, an appointment yeah
1: yeah so i i went for a visit and i said hell no no way am i going to walk around here in that uniform for four years right so i went to the university of Illinois Chicago and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I enlisted in the army. So, uh, I went to Sand Hill, Fort Benny, uh, for OSAT, one station unit training for combat armed soldiers. And, um, I scored very high on whatever they call the test. Like, they call them ASVABs or whatever. Yeah. The
0: ASVAB. Yep.
1: Yep. ASVAB. They scored really high. So they said to me, uh, feel like going to officer school. I said, yeah, actually, I actually want I'd like to fly. A, I'd like to fly a helicopter. So, Anyway, so I went to the OSAT. My intent actually was I, was I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And uh, so the uh, – anyway, then I go to, I go to Officer Candidate School. I graduated, I don't know, pretty high up, like four out of my something. They wanted to give me an RA commission. I didn't want that. But um, so then – so they branched me infantry, and I liked it. And I was – they already had been flying airplanes around, so I kind of thought about it and said, oh, the heck with it. I don't want to be a pilot. And uh so and then I ended up, you know, um, officer basic infantry and ranger school and pretty much that's what I did. I liked it. How how long were you in for? I went in, in I think it was April eighty one. I think it was separated in eighty nine. So but I did I did uh, a couple of years of what's called IMA. You know what IMA is? No, what's that? I kind of related to if you've ever seen the movie Apocalypse Now, Martin Sheen's role in the movie Apocalypse Now. So you get to go home. <laughs> <laughs> they call you well I had a call in. And and it you figure out if you have a mission or not. And something to do. So I liked it. I, I didn't I didn't like the idea of career development. My uh what I, what I called I guess it's a uh, pers- personnel personal maintenance officer, which was like the the school counselor, It was a colonel, was always telling me, you know, the next thing they wanted me to do. Right. And part of what I had to do was go do something where I had to wear dress greens and, you um, know, it was career development, right? So the idea is they're going to make you a general eventually. And so you, you know, you have a platoon and then you have a company and then you go, you go and go back to go get more school. You go get a pilot high and deep degree somewhere along the line, you know, for whatever basket weaving thing it is. And, <laughs> and, then, and then you got to go to the Pentagon and follow some general around and hand out coins. And I said, no way. I'm not doing it. It's so, 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 like this is a career development for me. I, I came here to do something interesting, not walk around the Pentagon following the general around. Oh, but, you know, then you'll be a colonel and then you'll be, away eh, no way. So uh, I kept resigning. Anyway, So that's why they then they made me IMA. And that was interesting until, uh, anyway, until they started giving me dumb assignments. I resigned again and they finally separated That's a great story. So what did you do after you got out of the military? I was able to get a job because IMA is... It, it, they don't have anything for you. You you do something. So I was working as a distribution man, independent distribution manager for the Chicago Tribune. And my partner who he, uh, he had been in the army, my partner in the recovery business, exploration business, because I do exploration, Marine exploration. He had been in the army. He worked on Pershing missiles. Um, the, uh, it was in Germany. I think it was Germany. Well, he and I formed a company, um, a marine exploration company. So we we started, we bought a pretty decent-sized boat about 1985, 1986, and we started um, a lot of marine exploration in Lake Michigan. So, so that's what we did. We, uh, and we found loads of lost World War II aircraft, lots of ships, all kinds of things. And there was a market for World War II aircraft, both in the civilian world and in the uh, kind of museum world and the the Navy world. So that's what we started to do. So
0: the exploration thing just kind of started as like like a fun hobby thing that eventually became a business for you
1: guys. Every single thing I do is a hobby. I I don't look at anything as that it will ever make money for me or ever be a business, but. Of course, to do these things, you have to form a business, right? Right. And we formed what's called A Recovery, and we're good at it. We're, we're both of us are really good at finding. I take great pride that when I was eight year old, eight years old, I found a pineapple hand grenade. That was pretty cool. Wow. Um, so they I found it in a barn, <laughs> 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 and we find stuff everywhere we go. So we we like to find stuff. We like to explore anything. So. So we're pretty, we're really good at it. we're good at finding things that are lost and uh, but it was interesting so we started recovering these aircraft for museums they were asking us for them we started recovering them. and the new director at the time in about 1988 of the National Naval Aviation Museum called us up said he's going to put it have us put in prison if we keep doing it because they the Navy owned them they owned the aircraft so oh, wow. we uh, so he said but you can work for me. And we said, oh, OK, but it's going to cost you a lot. And he said, well, I, I have this way of paying you where we're going to give you old Navy junk, old military junk, and you're going to sell it and make money that way. And then he found out that was illegal, too. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> well, it was legal if we were giving him something that we owned, but the Navy owned the aircraft that we were finding and recovering. So what we were providing was a service. So. We had to go and get federal law change, which was kind of fun. Wow! We quickly learned how to become lobbyists. Yeah, and that's... so we lobbied for this law change, and we were successful. So, what was what was the
0: law? How, how did the law read prior to you guys changing? It and how did you what did you get it changed to?
1: The law basically read that the military museums could take surplus, obsolete military equipment. That had value to collectors and um, other people, or, or even could be just value anyway. It could be like an old bulldozer that the Seabees use, right? Right. So that the directors of the museums and the Department of Defense could take that old stuff and get it appraised and then trade it for items that helped the Department of Defense historic collection. We had to get it changed so that it said, they could use those old military items to exchange for services. Because gotcha. we were performing a service. We were finding and, and rescuing the aircraft. They still belong to the Navy. It's kind of like a wallet. If you're walking through a parking lot of a grocery store and you drop your wallet and someone else finds it, it's still your wallet. It's not theirs. Right. right. So it's the same thing. The same theory applies. The Navy dropped them in the lake they still own. It.
0: So, when you guys are doing this exploration, I know you, you started in, in uh, Lake Michigan, and why why would you be finding World War II aircraft
1: in Lake Michigan? During the war, people don't think of it, but but uh, well, nowadays they don't think about it because their school system's so messed up. They don't they don't learn what what people actually went through during World War II. But off the coast, off the East Coast, were the wolf packs, the German the German uh, U-boats and off the west coast were the Japanese submarines. The Japanese had really good submarines during World War II. People don't realize it. I think they, uh, one of the Japanese submarine captains, torpedoed a part of San Diego Harbor. People don't know that. Oh wow! Yeah. So it, uh, <laughs> if you put a training aircraft carrier off of one of the coasts where pilots were just learning to land on it. It'd be really easy pickings for a, a submarine. Oh yeah. So they came up with the concept, put two of them on the Great Lakes, where at least they didn't have to worry about being torpedoed. And um, they so they had what, they, what was called the Wolverine and Sable. They took two uh, former excursion boats. They believe it or not, before World War II, there were cruise ships on on the Great Lakes. You could go like people do nowadays. Oh wow. And. And you could go take a week-long cruise on these ships. So the Navy bought two of them. They bought the, uh, the C&B and the Greater Buffalo, and they turned them into the USS Wolverine and the USS Sable. And they were smaller than a fleet carrier. I'm I'm not an expert on aircraft carriers, but I've seen plenty of comparisons, shown. They were pretty small. And these guys who had about 300 hours of flying time had to prove they could land on. And <laughs> so... Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to land, uh, if you've ever landed on an aircraft carrier no. or I, I I have a trap and a cat. I wasn't the pilot, right? I was a passenger, but I've been in a simulator, a Navy simulator, one of the super fancy simulators and tried to do it on that. Forget it. It's unbelievably difficult. It's hard. So that's in a modern aircraft carrier, modern aircraft. Like I said, I was in a simulator. I tried it on a simulator. I, I crashed into the fantail 20 times out of 20 tries. So uh, so this is World War II. These things were these, these were difficult aircraft to fly. So between 1942, autumn of 1942, and about September 1945, three years, they uh, they lost about 130 aircraft to Wow. Doing that. Wow. I think it was pretty good. They qualified about 15,000 pilots.
0: Oh, well, yeah, that's a small ratio then.
1: Yeah, so they did pretty well.
0: So what else have you guys found in, in Lake Michigan? You found a bunch of airplanes. Did they have other, like, Navy vessels and stuff up there that they were doing
1: training with? There's a lot of ships in Lake Michigan. So we have a lot of shipwrecks. We've located some of the most historic shipwrecks in Lake Michigan, ones that just disappeared and nobody had ever seen before. And then the uh, the UC-97 UC-97 U-Boat, which is a German World War I U-Boat that was intentionally sunk in Lake Michigan 1921. It was brought there on a bond drive. And then they took a bunch of parts out of it to study them because the Germans had better optics. They had a way better periscope. They had better engines than we did. A lot of stuff like that. German, German submarines in World War I were way better than anything anybody else had. They uh they dove better, they just were all around better. So we studied it a little bit. There's uh one of the sister boats. The the US after the war, six sub six submarines were turned over, six German submarines were turned over to the US. And they brought them to the US. There's one actually sunk off of San Diego called the UB 88. It's it's been located by divers. I've never been to it. Um, it's been located, so if you go on the internet, you can see. The information about the UB88. To our knowledge, the UC97 has only been located by A Recovery. The UC97, they just really didn't know where they sank it, and it's very difficult to find it located. Thousands of people have attempted to locate it and it failed. Uh, we're the only ones that have located it. Well, what do you What
0: do you think the reason is you guys were able to find it over you know others that have looked?
1: We spent the time. <laughs>
0: Is it like a technology and equipment thing? Or was it just the time you, you did you put towards yeah, it?
1: Yeah, Well, lots of people have the technology and the equipment. You've got to do the time. What is it George Burns said? 90% of life is being there. Right. You, you got to look. You have to look for it. And, and you have to spend the time looking for it. So we were willing to do that. And we found it. In the process, we found a whole lot of other ships and a whole lot of airplanes. And uh, it's kind of cool because most of the, a good number of the aircraft that we located while looking for the U-boat, we recovered them for the Navy. So we had a, we had a purpose. We had a dual purpose, ulterior motive. Does the Navy,
0: when when you recover something for the Navy, do they take it and, um, I mean, do they do anything with it? Do they fix them up and give them to museums or put them in yes.
1: their own museums? We, we recovered approximately forty aircraft for them. And they send them, they send them all over the country on loans to other museums. Your area, believe it or not, out of all the aircraft we recovered, there's only two on display in the Chicago area. Oh wow. And there's there's one in each of the airports. There's one in O'Hare Airport and one in Midway Airport, both projects sponsored by primarily from McDonald's Corporation. The hamburger people. Wow. And Boeing participated in the one at Midway Airport, but my McDonald's is the main supporter. In the San Diego area, there's five or six of the aircraft on display. Oh, that's cool. So it's interesting. You and then in, in Michigan, they have four of the aircraft on display. And other the city of Chicago is a typical, I don't want to get into politics, but it's a typical liberal city and um they're they're idiots, <laughs> collective I, idiots.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would concur with that thought. Uh, yeah, for sure. But they're just
1: collective idiots. They live about they live in the here and now and they live in the me, 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 me and they're piss ants. There's nothing. They have no souls. They have no drive to be anything other than pissing. Give me, give me, give me so I can I can be nothing but a surf pissant. That's, that's the mentality of the people of Chicago. Too,
0: yeah.
1: Of, of, of Illinois.
0: Right. And, oh, and
1: California too. I'll yeah. stop talking politics.
0: Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot of difference here. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So uh, speaking of California now, I know you had, you had a find here, like in the San Diego area, um, the Ote reservoir, is that right? Um,
1: there was a fisherman, a, a freshwater fisherman. I asked him why he does not go in saltwater. He told me that fresh water. He likes more of a challenge. Uh, His name is Dwayne Johnson. I think he has Western flooring should still be there because he wasn't that old. And so he was, he was bass fishing. um, And I'm not the best to tell his story. I can tell the high level. So he and his friend were bass fishing with his boat and they were cutting across the reservoir and on his, uh, I think it's a hummingbird he had hummingbird fish locator. He saw the airplane. And he uh, so he contacted somebody in the local – there was plenty of Navy there, San Diego, and it took a little bit, bounced around a little bit, and it finally got to the National Naval Aviation Museum. It actually reached us at A&T Recovery first, and then we actually told the National Naval Aviation Museum. So then they talked to everybody, and they asked us, did you know about that aircraft? We said, we knew it was there, but it was California. People are nuts, right? So <laughs> anyway, so they <laughs> – they said, could you guys go pick it up? And we said, sure, we'll go pick it up.
0: What kind of aircraft did you find?
1: Uh, well, we didn't find it. Uh, Dwayne Johnson did. It was a hell but We recovered. it. Gotcha. And then you know, one of your staff, your production staff, spent the week there with me filming.
0: Yeah, yeah. Paco, Paco was telling me about that. That's, that's a really yep. cool connection. Um, what are some other you know, cool areas where you've had to go do some, some recovery or some exploration?
1: We closed some FBI cases and some FAA cases, the, uh, well, they actually, uh, the FBI extradited me once over one of those cases. Really? I mean, that was kind of funny. Yep. We found a, uh, an aircraft lost in 1966 and, and that aircraft was coming from somewhere in Texas with three men in it heading to Detroit, Michigan for some sort of meeting. If you draw a line, from just about anywhere in Texas to Detroit, Michigan, you don't get near Lake Michigan. But in 1966, this airplane disappeared. And we found it 20 miles out in Lake Michigan. So we we called the NTSB and the FAA and said, hey, we found this aircraft. They gave us the, the report on it, that it was missing. And they... And we asked them, well, do you want it or do you want to know anything about it? And they said, no, we don't care. It was 1966, right? The Michigan State Police have a diving team and it was a funsy onesy thing. They wanted to go dive on it. So they spent all this time and money trying to figure out how to get the position for the aircraft from And finally, one of them got smart. One of their lawyers got smart and says, have the NTSB ask them where the aircraft is, the position of the aircraft. Well, every legal counsel that we talked to told us we would win this case because we had asked them if they wanted it, and they said no. But they were doing it for the Michigan State Police Dive Team who wanted to go play on it. And so the Michigan State Police Dive Team said that Michigan has a law that all drowning victim bodies have to be recovered if possible so that was their supposed justification right that right. there would be three people in there. so so we told the nts So the ntsb said what's the location and they did it you know they didn't do it in a formal way they just called us up and said what's the location and this was 3 weeks after we had asked them if they want the location so my partner took the call and he said get off my phone <laughs> next thing i know my lawyer calls me and says the FBI is coming to, to, to pick you up to, because they've signed extradition papers. They're going to extradite you to Michigan. I said, why Michigan? Why can't they just lock me up here where I was? And <laughs> so, anyway, they looked like a pack of buffoons. I did, uh, for, for writing my book, I uh, did a uh, FOIA on it. And even the FOIA people from the FBI and the Michigan State Police said, boy, do we all look like a pack of buffoons. <laughs> anyway, so then but that wasn't the most famous one. We uh there was a guy named Dee Bland Stewart that went missing in Alabama, and people claimed that he faked his plane crash. Well, we know plane crashes, and so we looked at the, the NTSB report on it and we realized he didn't fake his plane crash. He had crashed in the lake where, where it was suspected he crashed. About two years after he crashed, um his wife he was an insurance broker and, and he was, he held true to form. He bought lots of insurance. He had lots of life insurance and his wife wanted that life insurance. She knew he was dead. So they, uh, they had seven other companies try to find him. I don't know what they were doing. They couldn't find him. his, his wife and, uh, his wife contracted with us to find him. It took us like two days and we found him. And, and so it was on America's Most Wanted. So you remember that program, America's Most yeah, Wanted? Yeah, I watched it all the so time. We're one of the people who found a, a fugitive. Oh, they had an international manhunt. I think the FBI people knew full well that he was that he was in that lake somewhere. But I think they were having fun running off to the Bahamas and running on, <laughs> right. supposedly looking for the guy. So yeah, we we they never said our names on uh, America's Most Wanted, the program. They just they just showed video of me horsing around when we were covering. Yeah,
0: that's really cool. So, um so I got to imagine, you know, you're, you're continually pursued by, you know, law enforcement, the Navy to find stuff. Do you have like other countries that reach out to you to come find, you know, shipwrecks or, or down? Oh, yeah, the Chinese,
1: the Chinese government wants, wants us to go find a uh, American volunteer group uh, aircraft. Well, we took a look at the lake they're talking about. The lake is like a, like an acre in size. But it's a bunch of mud and well like you've got you've got a gazillion chinese divers Just put them just take them all out in the lake space them out and just tell them all to go down and feel in the mud till they feel something hard <laughs> right yeah <laughs> but for some reason they they try to talk us into coming and do it and uh like you guys come on it's it's easy <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what it is why they want us to do it. I don't understand. Um, you know, there's stuff off of San Diego that we've located that we we definitely would like to recover. There is a, a it's called a TBD, which I think stands for torpedo bomber Devast, uh, Douglas or TB, torpedo bomber Douglas. Um, so, which is a devastator torpedo bomber. There's one off of San Diego. We located it. We located it in 1988. And um, that's another, that's another Navy fiasco. The the Navy, the National Naval Aviation Museum is under the command of a thing called the Naval History and Heritage. Okay. Navy History. It is, it is the textbook example of, bureaucracy run amok and what socialism gives you. They, it's full of nothing but pilot high and deep people who have never done a damn thing in their life who are the most worthless people on earth who have no business in our government, the most abusive agency there ever is. They've spent the past 25 years stopping me from doing what I do. Because they say only their people with their pilot high and deep meaning they spent years in so-called institutes of higher education, listening to other blowhards, blowviate, and they say they're the only people that should have anything to do with all this lost history. Believe it or not, they could care less about the American population, learning anything, knowing anything, seeing anything, touching anything. It's It's their playground because they have PhDs. (laughs) they've done everything they can to stop us. And they've successfully kept us from being able to recover DVDs.
0: So you have a a big passion for, you know, education, obviously through, through all this. Um, What are you doing kind of in that realm, as far as, you know, getting, getting some of this history out to, to kids in school and stuff like that. Have you had any
1: success doing that? We do everything we can to present in the school system. I do a lot of presentation and, colleges, universities, and high schools. The problem we have is, I would just simply say, the National Education Association. You take the average teacher, they go to school and they get a degree in education. I walk into a high school and those kids are glued to me because, as I say, I'm a real horse. I've actually done the work. I've done the things. I'm part of history. And I present to them and bring them something that's real. So, and what we do is we take it and we we apply it to their life. So, you have a math teacher in a school who's got a degree in education who says, three times three is nine. And the the kid who's not hit, doesn't, doesn't, is having trouble, says, why do I need to know this? And the teacher says, well, because you need to know it later on in life. Where I say, Hey, we're going to go diving at 120 feet. That's so many atmospheres. How many atmospheres is that? Why is that important? You have to understand your nitrogen nitrogen saturation. You have to understand your time. You have to be able to divide that out and figure out what your surface inter- or your, your hang intervals are. And then you're going to come out, and then you have, to, you have to spend a bunch of time on the surface figuring out your surface interval. That's why you need math. Right. And suddenly the kid, the kid's entire world opens up and says, oh, my God, there's a reason for me to actually know this stuff. He gave me I may not be a scuba diver, but but there's going to be other things that I'm going to need to know this for. But these the, the mindless drone socialist morons in the National Education Association. They beat their mantra and they. There's nothing inspiring about any of them. Oh, yeah, you have a teacher here and there that's, you know, whatever. But no, most of them don't get it. They don't get it. You have to inspire in youth. You have to inspire them to be something so much more than anybody ever thought they would be. My partner and I grew up in a gang drug ridden area. Almost every family in my neighborhood lost at least one male child to drug or gang violence. Wow. Nobody ever expected us to be or do anything. And now our personalities are way different than most people. We we just stood out. We just weren't like all the rest of the piss ants. And, but you can take, you can take a group of kids who nobody expects them to be anything. Put me or any one of on my team in a room with them, and the light bulb turns on, and they realize they can be so much more. Yeah. Your your crew there will tell you how I am with you. I might tease them and I might pick on them, but I definitely inspire them to be something way more than anybody thought they would be.
0: Yeah, well, I'm giving them some some practical view on how this education is going to benefit them, you know, which. You don't get just reading
1: the book and taking notes. Part of what I see is that there's this, you're going to go to high school, maybe you go to college, and then you're going to become this, this cog in this giant wheel. And what we say is, use your brain. Think of wondrous, crazy things you can do. The world is full of so much opportunity. Look around and find it and do it. Um, I like, I like the philosopher, um, Alan Watts. He's, he has a thing called, what do you desire? And he says, this, this system we have with these people, they, he's dead now. They said the way they're doing this and nobody does what they really desire. Do what you desire. I went in the army. I went in the army because we desired to do that for a little bit. When it became unfun, we reinvented ourselves. Right. Right. Yeah. Do what you desire, do what you love and somebody will find, you'll find a way to make money doing it. It's just what happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that's, I mean, that's words of advice that you, I think has been told a hundred times over, you know, do what you're passionate about or do what you love and yeah. and you will make money from it and it won't be a job. Right. Uh, but we get so conditioned, I, I guess, in our, our bureaucratic education system that You're just being educated to get the job and be the cog in the wheel. Like you said, what's
1: the job? Oh, every day, mundane nonsense. You come in every day and, (laughs) and, and what's, what's your achievement, your accomplishment when you're old and gray, nothing. Right. Right. So yeah, you look back and you, you say, what did I do? In my life, I say, what didn't I do?
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And that's the perspective we should all have. Um,
1: and then, and then we have this thing about our looks and our vanity. And I try to tell And what do we do? Our youth paints themselves with all kinds of stupid tattoos and earrings. And they think they're original. They're they're They think they're clever, clever and creative with stupid, big giant hoops in their ears and rings to their nose and, and all kinds of drawings on their body. And I tell, tell people, I do this and say, my scars tell the story of my life. That's just a visible one, <laughs> right? You know? and that's what tells you. Your broken bones and your scars tell you really what you were. So, yeah. How many times you were almost killed? That that matters,
0: <laughs> right? So, that, that's that's what built you. Yeah, game. that's what built your character and and your your drive hmm. and all that stuff, right? You know, tattoo or a piercing. That's just that's just wall candy.
1: You know what's always been funny to me is is we make these action movies and and the youth is in awe of these action movies of people doing all this stuff. And then they'll turn around and they'll start playing a video game. Instead of actually going out and doing something that's a little action oriented. <laughs> so I, I think what parents could do to help their kids the most is Take away their video game, take away their cell phone and say, go, go out and get some scars. Come home. Yeah. Doing good things, doing good things.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Obviously, you know, not breaking the law, but, <laughs> uh, well, awesome. Terrence, uh, Terrence, it's been um, a pleasure having you on the show, man. Um, I've heard a lot about you and I love just hearing your story and chatting with you and all the cool finds. And things that you've pulled up. Um, and thank you for your service as well. And oh, thank
1: you for your, I you didn't tell me yours, I think you were in the military.
0: Yeah, five years in the Air Force, got out as an E five, staff sergeant, and uh, yeah, it was a good run, man. It was a good run. And I you know, now my, my business is VA loans and that's that's my passion is just, you know, helping veterans understand that benefit and, you know, that ability to help to start creating some wealth for themselves and their families, um, through a unique tool that only us that serve have access to you know all right, well thank you you bet you all bet right. thanks terrace. I appreciate it man We'll love to have you back on the show one of these days and and, and learn some more about your adventures
1: oh there's there's a million other things I do
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right everybody well for um if you'd like to get in contact with me or learn more about Terrace, you can always visit v dot u s we can get you connected.
1: you might want to throw it in there. I give presentations all over the country, so oh, cool. uh, i'm i'm a well-known public speaker, uh, I give presentations on nuclear energy, on on exploration. Uh, so the <laughs> so if anybody wants any museum or whatever ever needs a speaker, I'm, I'm sought after quite a bit. By the you know, I presented at the National Naval Aviation Museum, the Flying Leathernecks Museum. Um, anyway, so I I present just about everywhere. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah anyway so if anybody they're welcome you can give them my email address my phone number doesn't matter i don't care i it's all on the internet anyway and nobody ever nobody ever harasses me or anything uh other than the the phd archaeological liberal goofballs who uh who think i gore their ox because they uh because i i let everybody know they're buffoons
0: <laughs> i love it they need to hear it that's for sure <laughs>
1: And you know, it's funny, they never ask me what my education is. They just assume that they have the greatest education. They never ask me what mine is.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and, and you want to know why they don't ask? Because they know if I tell them, they'll look like morons, because they are morons. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> my education outdoes theirs anytime. Awesome, man. Thanks, Terrace. It was
0: really good to meet you. And I'm really, I'm really glad we had this connection with Paco and, and, uh, and CJ too. And we got to meet you. So um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. If you have any questions about the episode you just saw, you can reach out to me at valoanguy.us.